favorite song. It's a good Sunday to add that to our song list, isn't it? Well, as you heard, our task today is to introduce the Gospel of Mark, which we will be spending the rest of this year and about half of next year going through. Before I forget to say this, I want to give you a couple of handles that will come from our sermon today that whenever you're going through the Gospel of Mark and hear a text, you can ask these two questions. What is this text, this, par- this passage teaching me about the kingdom of our God? Second question, what is this passage, this text teaching me about the king of the kingdom? It occurs to me uh, that some of you may have come to church today in the same condition I've come to church way too many times. You come here with low expectations. Maybe you are young and don't feel like you have the knowledge needed, or maybe you feel like you're not talented enough, or maybe you're in the condition of feeling like you have failed God too many times and He uh, can't find you useful anymore. Well, I hope it will encourage you to listen to the story of John Mark. Mary... And John Mark, her son, lived in the home in Jerusalem when they were believers in Jesus. If you read Acts 12, you'll find that it was to this home that Peter came after he was miraculously released from prison and was greeted by the servant girl named Rhoda. Herod had killed James and put Peter in prison, and God released him from prison, and he went to the home of Mary and John Mark. Later, when Paul and Barnabas were planning a missionary trip um, to the Gentiles, they went to Jerusalem and picked up John Mark and took them along with, him, with them on the trip. John Mark was with them on their, onto the island of Cyprus, and he witnessed Paul strike a Jewish false prophet named, uh, I don't know his name, who strike him blind at the city of Salamis. But at the next stop in the journey, John Mark abandoned the mission trip and returned to Jerusalem. Imagine that, having that on your uh, resume. You go on a mission trip, the very first mission trip to the Gentiles, and you abandon it. This abandonment was so severe that it later caused uh, Paul and Barnabas to separate uh, from each other. And on the second missionary trip, Paul took Silas. Uh, Barnabas took John Mark and they went in different directions. You may be here today having low expectations because you too have failed God. Maybe you've failed him a lot of times and you don't think that God could find you useful anymore. But this same John Mark went on to unite with Peter and serve as his assistants, much like Timothy did with Paul. And Mark would use the preaching of Peter and his stories about Jesus to write the very first gospel account of the life of our Lord. In fact, John Mark became known to the early church as Mark the Evangelist. What a turnaround. Let's pray. Father, your word proclaims that the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come. Your command is to repent and believe and follow Christ. He has promised to make those of his church fishers of men. This morning, Lord, would you show us the glory of your kingdom and the glory of your king? It would be a great kindness if my heart was to be completely captivated by Jesus. 
Help us to lay aside our past and looking ahead, follow you. Give us grace to be like the Lord who came not to be served, but to serve so that the lost might become citizens of the only kingdom that cannot be destroyed. I want to start with just a few technical notes and kind of get them out of the way. Mark's gospel is believed to be one of the very earliest New Testament documents, likely written between 50 and 60 A.D., likely while Peter was still alive. The gospel was widely accepted by the early church as spirit-inspired scripture. Such early church leaders as Arrhenius, Clement, Eusebius, and Jerome all accepted this gospel as scripture. As you read Mark's gospel, you'll notice that it's fast-paced. It proceeds as if he's presenting a drama. And it's easy to divide the gospel up into three sections of drama. The first, uh, chapters 1 through 8, the drama around Galilee. The second, chapter 8, verse 22 through the end of chapter 10, the drama on the road to Jerusalem. And the last, chapters 11 through 16, the drama of the last week that happens in Jerusalem. The kingdom of our God. That's our first topic this morning. In Daniel chapter 2, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And this dream is of a huge statue, a colossus, that strikes fear and terror into his heart. This great statue is told to us to represent the Gentile kingdoms that will rule until one new kingdom arises and that kingdom will crush all the others. It's in the Gospel of Mark that we find the characteristics of this one new kingdom that would arise and has arisen. It's a kingdom that destroys the other kingdoms and arises during the days of the Iron Empire, which is Rome. The kingdom begins small, unnoticed, like a small pebble, a stone. But it arises from supernatural sources. It is a kingdom not made by the hands of man. The word kingdom appears 14 times in the Gospel of Mark. And it's centered around five occurrences in chapter 10. In 25 verses, the word kingdom will appear five different times. Just like that stone in Daniel chapter 2, The kingdom that Mark presents in his gospel appears suddenly and in obscurity. Look at Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. I will ask you to follow along in your scriptures for several passages this morning. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God wasn't like the kingdoms of the empires of man didn't appear with gold or silver. In fact, it came walking down the street wearing the usual attire of an everyday person. It was in a region of an ancient land where Jews and Gentiles lived together in a mixed culture. And it came speaking a message. The kingdom is here. Repent. Believe. This is good news. Mark describes several characteristics of the kingdom of God that I want to Uh, expound upon and understand today and help us try to grasp this gospel and how he presents uh, the kingdom. The first characteristic is that the kingdom of God invades and disrupts. What we find in the gospel of Mark is that when the kingdom comes to people, they're engaged in their usual normal lives 
and it disrupts them. Listen to these disruptions as the kingdom invades, and these are all found in the first chapter of Mark. The kingdom of God causes fishermen to lay down their nets. The kingdom removes a demon who's decided to attend a religious service. The kingdom replaces illness with wellness by healing, and I quote from the gospel, all who were sick or oppressed by demons, end quote. The kingdom moves with urgency through many towns, giving the good news. The kingdom shows pity to those who are unclean and renders them clean again by just touching them. All of this disruption is in one chapter of Mark. But the kingdom of God goes on to disrupt and invade. It disrupts religious dogma. You know what religious dogma is? Religious dogma are the rules and the thoughts of man that we make up about God to make him in our own image so that we can believe that we're following him in the right way. It arises from pride. Look at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. You'll see religious dogma here. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now listen to the religious dogma. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washings of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that's Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And listen to this disruption. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Marx shows the gospel of God, the, king, the gospel of the kingdom, Invading and disrupting human lifestyles, human traditions, human teachings. It invades and disrupts demonic forces in the spiritual world. And even overthrows the very laws of nature itself. Lastly, in the Gospel of Mark, we find the kingdom of God to disrupt and do away with the final threat to all of humans, and that's death. The Gospel does away with the threat of death. The gospel of God invades and disrupts. Second characteristic we find in the in gospel of Mark is that the kingdom of God demands allegiance. Mark informs us of the same truth that we would find in Daniel chapter 2. It is the purpose of the kingdom of God to totally crush all other thrones. Look at Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. This is close to the center of, gospel, of the Gospel of Mark, and these are very important words. 34 to 38. After calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus purposefully uses strong and divisive language here. He uses the words of thrones and life and death and priorities. It is the intent of the gospel of the kingdom of God to do away with all that is fallen. All other thrones, all other regimes, all other kingdoms will fall before the kingdom of God. Religion has many followers and many devotees, but the kingdom of God only allows disciples. A stand has to be taken. A choice must be made. A decision must be rendered. This is the reason that you find in the Gospel of Mark an ever-increasing list of enemies of Jesus and the Gospel. It starts with the local scribes in Capernaum. Pretty soon you see the priests and the scribes in Jerusalem getting involved. Then the Pharisees line up to oppose Jesus and show up at his meetings to set up verbal traps for him. Finally, the hatred for the kingdom of God engulfs the Sanhedrin and the Roman rulers. Whenever the kingdom makes demands and says you must be a disciple, opposition arises in the hearts of men. That's the way it always is with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. In the 1930s, the adoration for Joseph Stalin in Russia was reaching its peak. Stalin's name was mentioned in a provincial meeting and immediately a standing ovation by the people arose. But that standing ovation also caused a dilemma. Who would be the first person to dare to sit down? An elderly man was unable to remain standing and finally had to sit down. The next day, he was arrested. In April of 1938, Adolf Hitler's 49th birthday was celebrated. Paul Schneider, a Jew, was a prisoner in the Buchenwald prison camp, and all the prisoners in this camp were ordered to give a salute to the swastika flag. Paul Schneider was reported to be the only prisoner in the camp who refused to do so, and he received 25 lashes with an oxhide whip as his reward. This is the way of the human empires that are found in Daniel chapter 2. They all rule by tyranny. They all rule by force. They rule by enslavement. They rule by intimidation. But in the gospel of God, you find a different way of, of getting allegiance from man's heart. In the gospel of God in Mark, you find the kingdom winning its way into the hearts and minds of people through serving them, through healing their illnesses, through teaching them with words of wisdom, and by giving them an invitation. That's the third point I want to talk about with the gospel of God, the kingdom and, and its gospel. It is entered by invitation. Throughout Mark's gospel, we find a single surprising fact. The front door to the kingdom of God has a sign on it, and it says, come in. Jesus begins his ministry in the gospel of Mark with these words, such words as these. Repent and believe in the gospel. Follow me. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Emphasis on the word call. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Even Jesus' final words for his disciples in his gospel of Mark are to go and spread the invitation to the world. There's a surprising story of an invitation in the Gospel of Mark, and I want us to look at it in Mark chapter 5. Would you turn there with me, please? 
In the interest of time, I need to set up this gospel, uh, this story a little bit. We're going to look at verses 14 through 20. Chapter 5. Jesus decides to leave uh, Capernaum and he goes to another region that is Gentile. He encounters a man there who is so demon-possessed that he lives among the in the cemetery among the graves and it's recorded that he can't be bound because he is so possessed by demons. Jesus heals this man, sets him free. Look at verse 14. Then the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. People came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how much, he has, how much mercy he has had on you. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Jesus' kingdom is not like other kingdoms. It's a kingdom of invitation. And here we see the kingdoms of man. They oppose Jesus doing something good. They rise up against him and say, we don't want you around here, go away. But Jesus' reaction is to the people who have rejected him is kindness. He has a new disciple. This man has changed his allegiance from the kingdom of men to the kingdom of God. And he wants to be with Jesus because he is now a Jesus disciple. Jesus says, I'm going to leave you here so you can spread my invitation to the people that have rejected me. The gospel of God, the kingdom of God, is entered by an invitation. Fourth point about the characteristic about the, God, the kingdom of God is that it is gained by confession. The climax of Mark's gospel can be found in chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to look at three verses. We'll be at verse 29. This passage serves as a central truth about the kingdom of God. Look at verses 27 through 29 of chapter 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Who do people say that I am? This is the single question that stands before all of humanity. Every one of us must answer this question. And according to the scripture, everybody's got an opinion. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. In our modern day, we may say he never existed. Or we may say that he was a good moral teacher and we should listen to what he said. Or we may say that he was just a good prophet who was mistaken about things. Or we may say that he was an interesting and effective debater. But none of those responses gain entrance into the kingdom of God described in Mark. The confession that must be made to gain entrance to the kingdom of God is you are the Christ. We're going to come back to that in a little bit.
The last characteristic of the kingdom that I want to mention out of Mark is the kingdom is characterized by urgency. There's a quick survey of Mark would inform you that there's one word that comes up all the time in the Gospel of Mark, and it's the word immediately. You will find it nine times in the first chapter alone. And I don't know how great my Greek is, but I counted 35 times in the Gospel of Mark itself, the word immediately. Why would Mark present his Gospel in such a way as to make it feel dramatic? Why would he use the word immediately over and over again? I think certainly it's to communicate that life with Jesus was one phenomenal event after another. But I don't think Mark was really trying just to entertain us. I think he had a deeper reason for making his gospel present itself in this way. I think Mark believed that the message that he was trying to teach us and tell us was an urgent message. It was a very important message. I think Mark believed it himself. The message is this, the kingdom has come, the last age has commenced, repent and believe. Remember, this is how he presented Jesus coming into the world in the very first message. Jesus said this, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel, the kingdom is characterized by urgency. The second question I asked you to think about as you go through Mark is, what does this passage tell me about the king over the kingdom of God? So I want to talk about that a little bit as we find it in Mark. Mark doesn't really have an interest in writing a fascinating novel or just a tale. He has heard the good news, and he's convinced that the good news is just as much a person as it is a message. He's well aware of the kingdoms of men because Mark lives under Roman rule. He lives under the, one of those empires found in Daniel 2. His gospel is intended to teach us that that stone that appears in Daniel chapter 2 has now struck the kingdoms of men and the whole world has entered into a new age. An age that will begin with a resurrection and will end with the resurrection of everyone who belongs to this kingdom. Those are that the kingdom of God is destined to fill the whole earth. So in, in the Gospel of Mark, we find four titles given to the king of the kingdom. We're not going to look at every one of them. The first one is Christ. This title identifies the one of prophecy, the one who was promised in the Old Testament scriptures, the one who is intended to save and restore and to reign. We could interchange it with another word. We could say Messiah. It was this title that Mark used immediately when he began to write his gospel. In the very first verse, Mark says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There can be only one king in a kingdom. There's no co-regency in the kingdom of God. Mark has given his life to the fact that this one man who appeared in Galilee wearing the usual attire and speaking a simple message was the one Christ, the one king, the one ruler. Mark knows that many people don't accept this, so he writes a gospel to try and convince others that this message is true. We've already noted that this title appears when Peter confesses who Jesus is to Jesus at the central turning point of the story. So look, at me, look with me again in Mark chapter 8. We're going to read verses 29 and 30 one more time. 
Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is a peculiarity about Mark's gospel. Mark presents Jesus as avoiding the title of Messiah, except in one circumstance. When he is in private with his disciples, he warns them in Mark 13 that there will be other people pretending to be the Christ, the Messiah. Don't follow them. I am the only one. The only time you'll find Jesus owning up to this title again is in the last week of his ministry in Jerusalem. By using Christ and referring to Jesus, Mark is teaching all of his readers and teaching us today that all of history detailed in the scripture has pointed to and is culminating in this one single person who is the rightful heir to the throne. Listen, when that stone of Daniel 2 becomes a mountain and it fills the whole earth, there will only be one person sitting on the throne. And it's going to be the same man who walked into Galilee speaking the message of the gospel. The second title for Mark, for the king in Mark is Lord. The Spirit inspired Mark to use this title of Jesus at critical moments to demonstrate the authority that Jesus inherently possessed for himself. The title is Kyrios, and it means owner, sovereign, and it has a, a component of reverence associated with it. It is to communicate that the king is in absolute control of his kingdom. And we find this in Mark repeatedly. In Mark's very first cha chapter, 1.22, we note these words. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. When Jesus is questioned about his healing on the Sabbath, his response, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am over that day. When Jesus has need of an animal to ride in Jerusalem, he instructs his disciples that when somebody questions him about what they're doing, he's there to give him this reply, the Lord has need of it. It's as if to say, all the animals belong to me. We shouldn't be surprised by that if we have our theology in, in order because Jesus has already said this in Psalm chapter 50, verse 10. Every beast of the forest belongs to me and the cattle of a thousand hills is mine. So when Jesus asked to use a donkey, he's the Lord of all those things. He's expressing his inherent right to do as he wishes as Lord of all things. Jesus even said something very astonishing to these Pharisees who were questioning him. He said this, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? In this single statement, and this is during the last week in Jerusalem, Jesus is telling us something truly astonishing. Jesus claims in this passage to be the Messiah, and he is claiming to be Lord over the greatest king that Israel has ever known. I am the Lord. But there's something else deeper in, the, in Mark that tells us some, something remarkable about Jesus' Lordship. Would you look at chapter 10 with me? Verses 33-34. This is the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' Lordship, but it's kind of hidden, and I want us to see it. 10, 33-34. Here's what Jesus says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death 
and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is Jesus claiming lordship over lordship over things that should astonish us. He claims to be the Lord over his own destiny. He claims to be Lord over the future. He claims to know detailed knowledge about how that future is going to turn out. And finally, he claims to be the Lord over death itself. This is the central truth of Christianity, that there's only one Lord. It was Jesus. He is the Lord of all things. He is the one whose prophets are all, whose words are all true. He's the one sacrifice by which we can be cleansed. And it was this one who proved to everyone that their placing their faith in him was a wise thing to do. Listen to you, listen as I read the conclusion nearly of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 16. I'm going to read 1 through 6. Thinking of Lordship. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. That's Jesus' ultimate profession of being Lord, his, his resurrection. The last title for us to look at in the Gospel of Mark is the Son of Man. This title was the one that was most frequently chosen by Jesus himself, and it found 14 times in the Gospel of Mark. I find this kind of authenticating because if you think that John Mark is hearing Peter preach and using his stories about Jesus to write his gospel, it would be logical to conclude that Mark would include the title that Jesus most often used for himself in his gospel, and that title is Son of Man. Jesus used this title whenever he wanted to exert his right to forgive sin in his warning to others that associating themselves with him was the eternal defining moment of a human's life. And he used it multiple times when he was making his disciples aware that associating with him was going to cause them to suffer. Why would Jesus choose such a title for himself? And why would the Gospel of Mark emphasize this title, Son of Man? I think to answer that question, we need to go back to the book of Daniel. I'm not going to ask you to do that. I'm just going to read this passage and let you hear it. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You remember that stone in Daniel chapter 2? The one that starts as a pebble, grows to the side of a, size of a mountain, and becomes such a great mountain that it fills the whole world? That's where Jesus is alluding to when he uses the title for himself, the Son of Man. 
I am that stone. I am that mountain. I am that kingdom that's going to destroy all the others. Mark wants us to know that there's a critical determination that every human being must make. It's an eternal determination. There's only one kingdom that's going to last. Only one king who will rule. One whom all nations and all languages will serve. And it's the same one that arrived in Galilee and Capernaum preaching the gospel. Every moment of his existence proved over and over and over again that he was and is Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, and Lord. And the final proof of his lordship was his lordship over death. Well, how in the world do we apply lessons from a whole gospel? So here's what I thought I would do. This may be dangerous, but I thought I would do it anyway. I'm going to kind of invite you in and let you listen as I run through the thoughts that went through my mind and I thought about these things as I prepared this sermon this week. So just kind of listen in. This is how I do introspection, and it might apply to you. Has my worship been impaired, or my expectations of my church services and my worship very low? You know, it'd be good for me to recall the story of Mark. He had a huge failure. He abandoned the apostles who were going out on a mission trip, and then he caused a separation in those same men. But by confession... And repentance. He became known as Mark the Evangelist. The power of God to change my life and your life has not lessened any over the years. It is still true today. The second introspection I had as I was going through uh, this is if it is the purpose of God's kingdom to invade and disrupt my life and to reorient my priorities and my choices. Is there evidence of that in my life? Can I prove that God has come in and invaded my life and disrupted my path and changed me? Am I growing in kingdom likeness? The next introspection, and this is a hard one because it's easy to forget the gospel if we're not careful here. I want to talk about discipleship. Has my allegiance to the kingdom overridden all other allegiances in my life? Is my allegiance to Jesus present and active when I'm at work? Is my allegiance to Jesus present and active in my duties as a pastor among this group of people? In my hopes and dreams for my children and my grandchildren, is Jesus at the forefront of those things in my mind and in my heart? Am I a disciple of God And does my life demonstrate that he is my first priority? I am a disciple, not just a follower. The next introspection I wrote down is that if I believe that the kingdom is an invitational kingdom, how motivated am I to be a person extending invitations? How often do people hear me say things like, you know, God has given me a home. Come on over. Or I attend Redeemer Fellowship. Would you like to come? Or, God has given me so much, is there anything I can do for you? And lastly, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and he's the only hope. Would you like to hear about him? Do I really believe that the kingdom is a kingdom of invitation? Another introspection, the kingdom is urgent. 
We, I, you, all of us together here, according to this gospel, live in the last age. Soon, there's not going to be any more invitation, any more signs on the door that say come, any more opportunities. Is my zeal lacking? Do I feel that urgency in my heart as I interact with others and think about my life? Should I take a seat and retire because I've got gray hair? Or should I keep working and doing what God wants me to do until He comes? Those are questions that run around in my head as I think through the Gospel of Mark. The last thing I would really want to ask myself from the Gospel of Mark, has Jesus become too routine to me? Have I lost that amazement and astonishment about Jesus that I find in the Gospel of Mark? Do His teachings and His words still carry the same authority for me that the people in Mark noticed naturally when he spoke. When I read his word, am I amazed and astonished by Jesus? Lastly, I want to I extend some really, really good news to my heart and your heart. Jesus is the proven and reliable Messiah, the Savior, the hope, the Lord over all events and everything that is in the future. I will never die, and I will see with my own eyes the final shattering of all the kingdoms of evil that live alongside, and live alongside all the nations and the tongues and the languages that will serve Jesus Christ. I can be absolutely sure that that is my future. So, it would be terribly wrong for me to end this sermon and not end with the whole purpose of a gospel. What is the purpose of a gospel and why do we have four of them? The kingdom of God is entered by invitation. The good news is that this invitation has been issued and it still stands today. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. The kingdom is gained by confession. There is no act of religion. There is no baptism. There is no being a perfect moral example. There is no attendance of church. That can help you enter the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom of God by a wholehearted confession of allegiance. The same allegiance that Peter said, you are the Christ. You, you alone, you the Jesus of history, you the promised one of scripture, you the center of all things. You are, you are in possession of life and death. You are the same as you were in the past. You are the same as you, were, as you will be now, and you're the same as you ever will be in the future. You are. You are Christ. You are hope. You are salvation. You are my sacrifice. You are the one who took God's wrath from me. You are the Holy One from God. This is how you gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven and live forever. So here's Mark's question. I take it right from his words out of his gospel, and this is where we'll end. Where do you stand? I don't want to take anything for granted about anyone here. Where do you stand? He writes these potent words of invitation, and they come with a warning. I'm going to read to you again, Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray.
Father, my heart is so given to unbelief. So given to my kingdom and self-centeredness. So given to having things the way I would like for them to be. You had to write down four different times the good news of your message so I would get it. I thank you for that. I thank you for your kingdom that will rule forever. I thank you that I can be a part of that kingdom by your open invitation through a simple confession of belief and faith. And that your kingdom will be the one that rules at the end of the day. Help us to rejoice and be glad. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.